Welcome back to Let Christy Take It, your pop culture podcast. This week, we're delighted to be joined by Thomas Walsh from the band Pogwash and the Duckworth Lewis Method to speak all things music as the man is a music encyclopedia. As well as being a good Dubliner. Thomas Walsh, welcome to Let Christy Take It. Thomas, how's lockdown been treating you? How's the whole COVID situation? Well, do you know what? I, I, I clicked on, I did a ward in your ear, ward in your attic with David Hepworth. Seen and, it. Oh, cool, thanks. And, you know, they're great friends and they're, they're heroes of mine. Like yours will become <laughs> when you get more acts like the Louis Sum and, you know, Eddie Raider. Eddie's lovely. I met Eddie before. But anyway... I, I was on YouTube yesterday for something very different and my word in your ear thing came up. And honestly, you know, I never look at stuff like that anyway. So uh, I clicked on it because, and it was halfway through the video. So I must have got halfway originally. I just went off like this, you know, I'm not watching any more of this. But it, it's really it's really fun anyway. That's the thing. And I, I sat and watched it. And, and at, the, at the end, David says, how is lockdown treating me? And I says, oh, well, it's I'm nine weeks now without going out. This was April, I think, last year. Yeah. So it Crazy. just shows, wasn't it, when you asked that question, how this is a fun podcast, isn't it? Wait, is that, that interview you've done with the lads from there, uh, well, I was a big fan of it. Well, I wouldn't say I was a big fan of the Old Grey Whistle Test. I was made to watch as a kid and then I grew into it because my father would have loved the music on I was more top of the pops growing up. But uh, to speak to like the lad that was on the Old Grey Whistle, how was that for you? Well, uh, well, it's a good point, really, because I always top of the pops, right? There's no, you know, there's no argument there. But the thing is, when you find out uh, as a kid that there's another show and the acts you love have either just finished, like you were with me, because I was a huge fan of The Move, you know, we're a band that finished in 1972, became ELO. Right, so, fine, I had ELO over the whole of the 70s and 80s, and, you know, I, I was kept busy then when Jordan did great years. But with something like the Melbourne and all, it was the gold dust to see them on TV or to hear them anywhere. Yeah. Even though they were a big band, you know, some big hit singles, number one, Blackberry Way, you know, Flowers and Rain, Horse Trekker played on Radio One, all that kind of stuff, you know, um, really influential and still are to this day, obviously. How did you get into the move? Was it true parents? Yeah. Or? It was true ELO. Okay, all right. You know what I mean? So, uh, Anilo came into the house to my brother Damien. My brother Joe, the eldest, was a big Queen fan. Still is, obviously. Um, so, there was great music. But my dad loved the characters and Perry Como and uh, Frank Sinatra. You know, all the classics. But, of course, through all of that was Gilbert O'Sullivan, you know, going right through everything. Yeah. Because, you know, let's face it, Gilbert could sound like, well, he could write a song like Frank or, you know, perform it like Frank in a way, standards, and he could sound like the Beatles, and, you know, he could sound like anyone, really, L. Gilbert. And so he was there through everything, I suppose. So there was a great Al Stewart, was my brother's a big Al Stewart fan, Mike Oldfield and all that stuff. Great eclectic text. So just tell us, what was it like growing up in Drimina? You had this, obviously, this great house of music. How, how was life growing up in Drimina? You're kind of the same vintage as myself and Derek. Yeah, I'm 52 in August uh, next month, and... But Drimna was fantastic because Drimna is a brilliant place and 
you know, of course, when you're from these places, you love them. But, you know, it's true, you know, because, what was it? It was Fingless, I think, or something in the in the 80s or something for the bad name. It was Tala in the 90s, maybe. Or Drimna was the 90s with Crumlin. And, you know, I lived in Drimna all my life, and then I moved to Crumlin. So I was just, you know, I was I was batting for both sides. But Drimna was wonderful. Well, you know, there was a big... There's a place called Lansdowne Valley, which I wrote a song about eventually uh, on my 11 Modern Antiquities album, which is coming back out in September on vinyl for the first time. And that was, uh, that was well, it's 100 Greatest Irish Albums to Hear Before You Die by Tony Clayton Lee and his wonderful book. And uh, I'll be trotting that out now for the next few months when I'm promoting it. But, uh, but it, I, I wrote that song on that record because there was this big house, the Turret House, just right in front of our house in, in Kilward Road in Germany. And that was, it was this incredible Disney-looking uh, building that this woman owned. And it went derelict, and like she died. And they used to have a windy path leading up to it. It's them new houses now. If you come in from the old Nice Road, you come down the Lewis Line, and they turn into Kilward Road on the canal. Yeah. Those houses that are forced, that's where Torrey House was, Lansdowne Valley. Of course, the valley's still there then, up the back and up to the, the Kamak and all that stuff. So... We used to go there as kids because it was left derelict. So there was just a building, a shell of a building. So we used to go in there. It was like an adventure playground. That's where I got born with plastic and tried before cigarette, you know, and I, I never liked it, so I never smoked. And just all that stuff was there. And then people used to go out, check out, people used to go and stand on the hilltop there leading down into the valley, looking over to the nice road. And they'd hit golf balls and see if they could get them onto the nice road. Wonderful things like that. And then all the drunks would sit there at the weekends and sing, drinking their cider. It was it was so ridiculous. But of course, it was a brilliant neighborhood. You know, neighborhoods existed back then, you know. I really hope there's still some. I'm sure there is. And you've, met, you've mentioned, Thomas, you've mentioned uh, the move, you've mentioned the yellow. What else were you listening to? Well, I have to say in the 70s, it was strictly ELO for me. It was that's really all it was up to when John Lennon was shot. And what happened then was, because of course I remember quite vividly the morning he was shot, my mom coming up to wake us for school. And she goes, guess who was shot? And I was, of course I said, don't slag me now, but because I'm telling you the story. I said, Jeff Lynn, because if someone would shoot Jeff Lynn, Jesus sake, even in the height of his fame, you know, he was the most boring man on the planet. <laughs> You know, I mean that so affectionately because I got to know Jeff, which we might talk about if you want. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, I mean that so lovingly because he never did interviews for ELO. It was always Bev Bevan. Uh, the fans would be like, Jeff, will you just uh, just speak? We want to hear you. And uh, no, he just he, he just wanted to have a beer at home. and He, he didn't tour for Discovery, which was a six, seven, eight million set an album at the time. The follow up to Elder Blue, he didn't, he didn't tour for it. He, he sent out a balloon, you know what I mean? And, and a few lights in the window, there was a light in the window, I can't bet. Anyway, I, I digress. But so it was Elo right up to John Lennon's murder. Because just before that, I was watching Top of the Pops, as you mentioned earlier. And just like starting over, was in the charts around 18. This is the week before he was shot. And I remember going, Well, that's great. That's a great sound. That's just a great record. I was going on 11 then. And of course, you bet. I mean, I was collecting and listening since I was six and seven. People think that's impossible nowadays or something, you know, with kids. But of course, 
that's what we wanted records and and music and so but they have a date now on a phone obviously that's different but they still wanted so my mom said my mom said I guess it was shot my brother said Rod Stewart which I always remember what the, f- the fuck's that about and uh, there was other guesses I remember Elton John my other brother said so anyway she said now John Lennon and I went it was John Lennon because you know so the amazing thing is we went down that morning the radio was on I think it was Radio Dublin uh, it would have been Radio Dublin and it was just wall to wall Lennon of course and, and Beatles and I was going I know that song I know that song we had the party plays that song we had that and I knew every song every song I knew and all I thought of was ELO were the only band in the world but that's how that's what people need to remember about the Beatles now because it's so long since they've gone they were in the psych they were in the air you know what I mean they were just around you without you even knowing it and things like you know say drive my car came on that morning which I'm sure it did it's in my memory and I'd be singing along to it and that wasn't even released as a single you know that wasn't even put out all the songs and all that weren't even released as singles you were singing it's so amazing how huge they were and still are thank god you know about like when you're young and you know, in the fields and the lads smoking their cigarettes and all but like for you at a very young age you started your kind of first foray into music with your by building a, a studio in your garden shed for people that don't know what's the, the story behind that that sounds brilliant building me building me own studio sounds like <laughs> sounds like richard branson in the manner of something uh, Wilson of Crumlin. yeah <laughs> But was a shed out the backyard. I'm going into space next year, by the way. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna have. I'm gonna clear out the boxes in the other room, and I'm gonna go into space. That's what's gonna work out. But uh, that's a terrible joke. But my dad had a shed in the backyard that was kind of he threw all his stuff in because he was a big gardener, and so he had his sheds and his greenhouses and all that stuff. But one shed, I was like, because I became, of course, in the eighties, then so many other acts came into my world. And one of the main ones in the mid-80s when they lowered the spanding and all was, because in the interim there was all the kinks and the BGs and all these brilliant 60s kind of starting acts that I started to love, you know. I get madly into it. Uh, but then around the mid-80s I found, well, early 80s I found XTC. And uh, I loved Chances Walking All the Time, saw it on Top of the Pops, another example. And I, was, I always remember all the world was biscuit-shaped, all the world is biscuit shaped. You know, Senses Open Overtime, which is their biggest hit. Probably not their most famous hit because Nigel is their most famous hit, even though it was only 70 in the charts. Senses got top 10. So I remember going, that's really cool. I went down with me auntie, I remember, and I bought Senses Open Overtime with Golden Discs in Mary Street, which was the go to place. There was loads of places, by the way. If you want to talk about Dublin record shops, that's a whole different podcast. Yeah, it is. Because I could name them all, I could ground them all. But, uh, so I didn't go to Hot Wax that day, or Sounds Around. I went to Golden Disc in Mary Street. Oh, we happened to be in town that day. 
And it was the usual two quid, 199. Really, 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 really intensive sticker stuck on the fucking cover. Excuse me, language. So, you know, I was collecting, obviously, then. And I was like, trying to peel off. I still have the single somewhere with the peel going up. But anyway, uh, but the B-sides were all weird. It was too weird for my 15-year-old brain, 12, 13-year-old brain. So I remember going, that's a great song, but uh, so I was in a kebab shop in about 86, 87, and there was a video jukebox there. Do you remember those things? Yeah. And three videos for 50p, very good deal. And I remember I played, uh, I played a, I think I played a Kinks one, maybe it was something like uh, Come Dancing was maybe still on it, something silly. Hey Jude was on after the David Frost performance. Uh, Obviously, I think the CDs are coming back out, so probably a bit of that going on promotion. And the other one was XTC on the bottom, Grass. And I went, well, I liked that song a few years ago. I said, I'll put that on. So I sat there and the first video went and then the Beatles, of course, great. I was there with a mate of mine and uh, I'll tell you what it was. It was a kebab shop in Inchicore. So I, I was there, you know, and it was a place in Inchicore called Kebabarama. So it wasn't even Abra Kebab, it was a fakey offshoot of the huge thing that happened in the early 80s for kebabs in Ireland. And, uh, so we were sitting there having this hot dog and a glass of milk. There's a memory for me. And uh, <laughs> next of all, the Beatles faded out. So they were XTC. And this ball dropped and then the video for XTC played grass and it's all kind of backwards and it's the Todd Rundgren produced album, Skylark, and you know, if you don't know it that well, lads, it's a stunning record. But it came on, and I literally, you know, the food and all fell out of my mouth, which is rare for me. I just sat there, and of course, the next day, I mean, bike into town, buying everything I could. And the great thing was, they were in all the cheap shops, you know, the secondhand shops. I got so much that day, so much. Became obsessed with the XTC. Found out Andy Partage had a shed. See how we're getting around here, lads? Got there. And I got these pictures sent to me, uh, of course, old style in the post of Andy in his shed and blah, 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 blah. I signed up to fanzines, so all the fanzines would arrive with these pictures. Fanzines are so brilliant, pre-internet, essential. And uh, I used to get one from Canada called The Little Express and one from England called Limelight. And, of course, I know all these people now and are on Limelight podcasts, you know, it's great. Uh, It's the next step, really. So... I just went, Dad, can I have that shed? And he was kind of giving up on me then, as in, you know, he's not going to be a shoemaker or a bus driver. He wants to do this music thing. And he says, I'll put, a lect- I'll put an extension cord in. So he did, he put an extension cord in from the house. Now, of course, he pulled it out many nights because I was out there at four in the morning going, la, 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 la. And he'd get up for a piss and he'd come into the kitchen and he'd, he'd look at the back and he'd see a little bit of light through the crack in it. Shed, but that fucker is still out there. <laughs> he pulled it, he pulled the cord out. And I'd be sitting there in the dark, the dog outside trying to bite through the door. So, uh, but that's what happened. I got a shed, I, I got a higher poetry's four track machine uh, in Music Maker, which were also great Irish musicians back in the day. They did higher poetry's and I got a guitar, a kind of Lennon rooftop 69. Gibson Epiphone, which I loved. Regret, always regret giving that away. Well, selling it on. But 
That's how it started. And Derek, you shouldn't have asked that question because 20 <laughs> minutes later on the fucking podcast well, and all. Here's another quick one. How many demos do you reckon you put together in that small shed? About 250, all before I ever did anything as a musician. And the thing was, I rarely played them to anyone because we mates, I used to go out to be mates. So I'll be mates with them in Michael's estate, uh, you know, Kill Square, all down there, Itchy Core, because Kilbert Road is right on the borderline of the canal and Itchy Core. So, so we sometimes you mind out, we go to the Oblitz Church, even though Mourn Road Church was their place, you know, in Trimley. It's just silly stuff like that. Probably mates were Itchy Core and Bullfin and places like that. So I'd go out to them and they were not musically inclined, you know. We were all football heads. Uh, we are all snooker heads, of course, back in the day, because that became huge. And we just hung out and watched Rob Cars. And, you know, that's that was the life. You know, uh, we didn't get into the glue sniffing and the and the knocking a nail into the top of the cheap wine bottle and drinking it slowly and getting pissed in two minutes, which is what all the, our other friends were doing, all the dodgy ones. You'd suddenly jump out of a seventh-floor window in the flats just to have a laugh because uh, they were off their tits so um, there was a lot of weirdness around because we were there for all the pushes out stuff during the late 70s and early 80s hanging out just hanging out in the night and all of a sudden you'd see the torches but that's what it was people with torches and lights and I remember it well yeah yeah and up to the 8th floor and getting out this pusher you know throwing all the stuff out the window and people cheering and uh, no, no one there like that with a phone. No. <laughs> Just all you know, and all the uh, all the L ones there with their arms crossed. Get them in. So when you stopped when you stopped chasing uh, drug dealers in your vigilante days, how did Pugwash come about? Yes, you don't want to give the social comments to <laughs> your uh, But that was it. I, I, I wanted to have a band, but I didn't want to have a band. So I wanted to have a name, and I wanted to be under the moniker of a band. But I, I, I did some rehearsals around 1989 for some kind of band. And, of course, it was guys turning up with fingerless gloves, drummers, and playing like that with a stick, sticking towards you and stuff, you know? A lot of heavy metal in the 80s, as we know. And then guitar players who wanted to either be Robert Fripp, you know, or, or Steve Boy or something, you know, just ridiculous tapping. And I was there with some songs about blackboard in a tray or something, or whatever, you know, some, you know, it wasn't all, I could write heavy songs, but it was it was a twist. Like I had a lot of XEC going on then in the DNA, so there's a lot of pastoral stuff. Anyway, it just I just got really disillusioned and I thought, no, I'm not going to find people. And then there was things like I heard about the band Dragonfly, who are this fantastic Northside band. And they're all, again, they're all great friends now. Uh, Colin Querney, who went on to be in Lear and solo artist now, great guitar player, great friend. But, but that band was the only band to ever let me go, I want to go and see this band. And I went out, I started going to the odd gig because I wouldn't go out to gigs and all, I wouldn't. So I was this guy in his shed, like Andy Partridge, who wouldn't tour or play. And I just did 250 plus demos, which I've ended up selling them all 
during the last five years because when things got bad, uh, when the band kind of just finished because uh, we, we couldn't sustain, you know, we were breaking even on everything and people have families and kids and, you know, everything and dependent. I'd have money coming in for all this stuff. How long was it before he's got a record deal, Thomas? Well, the funny thing was, Velo was the first label, uh, V-E-L-O, which was the, nothing to do with E-L-O, by the way, which was the father over the year, but it was like a French word. And uh, it was Michael O'Shea and, and Neil O'Shea, based up in Fairhouse in Dublin, and beautiful, beautiful guys. Had bands like the World Oscars, and I, do you remember that? Remember those? Uh, they were kind of cult indie bands, and they were a really cool label, and they had Lear. So, you know, they had some Lear stuff, and they had the first album, Magical Magical. So I, they came along to the bass player, Lear, Robert Malone, who's now David Gray's side band, and uh, he said, you should hear this guy, Wally. Writes great songs, because then I'd moved down my house, and I was meeting other musicians, and I met the musicians from Dragonfly and Lear and Glenn Hansen in the early days because they were always hanging out where I moved in Cromland. They'd come over to the house because there was guys from a band called Oily Black living in this house. Great name, isn't it? Because they literally were stone 24-7, you know, playing some Bob Marley. They were a cool band, though, you know. But uh, So they, uh, it was a big music house up in Cromland. And uh, Mundy then became in when he was 18 years of age, he used to give Mundy a lend me amp, either hair sweet. My mates who ended up being in pub washing. So it was a good a good house for music. I made a couple of records there, the early stuff, and they uh, wrote them all there. I hope it was detached. Neighbors love you sometimes. What's that? I hope it was the detached house. <laughs> well, if you know anything about Cromwell at all, it's a it's a thing called Glebe House, which is a huge old listed building. And it used to belong to the rector of Cromlin. And it was a huge house during the rising. Because basically there's tunnels out of the house. And they used to pull out arms. It used to, it was a, a kind of a, a, a basement of arms that the rector of Cromlin, you know, because they couldn't break into that house if they got there, you know, he was the rector, he was the, the holy man. And he had a basement full of arms, cache of arms. And they pulled them out under tunnels under the house, out to kind of grassy mounds where they collect them and go, go into town uh, for the rising. Because Cromwell at, at that time was still a lot of, still all green around this house. So this house sat there, still trouble today with it because obviously I lived there for 23 years. Uh, it went to rack and ruin really because it did. I tried to protect it in every way. I went to court over people who were wrecking it. Uh, at the time, Jesus, mad days. But uh, so they want to they want to knock it down still, but it's it's still holding firm, and it should hold firm. It's a huge historical place. It's three hundred plus years old, mm. you know, and it sits on its own grounds. It's right in the middle of Cronin. So that's where the house was. So yeah, the music could be done because there there was shops to the right, and it was a bit of a distance to houses. So it was a cool place, and. Uh, yeah, so the pub was formed there as a thing, but it was only me and friends at the start. Friends like Keith Farrell and Stephen Farrell who played at Monday and then people like the Picture House. I know you had Dave Brown on. He was really kind back in the day, and but, you know, blamed me for the stuff. You know, stuff that goes wrong in their band. I get blamed because I'm hanging around. And uh, Duncan, major band member, left 
and he joined Pugwash. But the thing was, he was crying on my shoulder every day, saying he hated picture house, he wanted to get out of it. And I says, well, if you leave the band, we should work together, but only if you leave the band, of course, because I'm not going to, you know, I didn't want him that badly. You know, I was getting on my own thing. But anyway, he did leave eventually, which was a huge thing back then, because they were a hit band, very successful band. And he left, on, I think six months later, I hooked up with him, and then he worked on a lot of my early stuff. And that was the band then I toured with, because they were great players. Duncan, Aidan O'Grady on drums, he's with the Pale now. And Sean McGee on bass, who, be, who stayed with me through my whole career. Uh, so that was the incarnation of Pugwash 1, 99. You mentioned the, the 250 demos that you did in your shed. And over yeah. the years, Pugwash have released seven studio albums. That's, that's a massive, pretty much every song written directly by you. What's your inspiration, Thomas? I mean, it's a massive output of, of artistic uh, artistic output. Well, thanks, thanks, Derek. Because, you know, I think I always, I, well, I don't say I always, but I often sit down and go, okay, it's been four years now this year since my last one. Now, the thing is, obviously, look what's happened in those four years. And I've been quite, well, very unwell. And I'm still fighting all that. You know, getting there, as they say. You know, we, we're Delta cards now. And we just have to, go through the autumn years as easy as we can, you know. And uh, so, you know, I know what's going on, but, you know, it's still a bit of a battle. But, of course, the pandemic has been huge. And, it, you know, again, people will look back and kind of go, oh, yeah, that thing. But, you know, it, when have we ever had to sit in a house for a year? You know, or, or, and more, really, you know, just to... Because, you know, you probably have families and stuff, and, you know, you... you the feeling of protection must have been even more huge for yourselves. I mean, I had to really be vigilant because of my health, because I was really in the high-risk factor. So I just stayed in. Now you think, okay, says it, write songs. Bollocks. I only say you have to have the blues to write the blues. Well, you know, I don't really like write a lot of blues songs. I do love to write having stress in a way because it does help. And there'll still be a lot of that in a new record when I get to do it. Uh, but I, I had no motivation to, to, to write Jordan that. So just what was your question again there, just to go back, because you mentioned the demos. I mentioned the demos and the fact that you put yeah, seven studio albums and it's a yeah. massive amount of artistic output all Sorry. written by you. Where do you get your inspiration from and what keeps you, what keeps the inspiration going? Yeah, well, the inspiration is that I want to have a new record of mine in my hand physically. It's the love of vinyl, the love of making music, the physical. Now, that, that sounds weird because I have to put music on it. That's actually credible. But that almost becomes second nature because it's something I can do and I'll never know why. And that's probably true of anybody you might ask. So I think that no one knows the answer to this. So I can't say, here, go, I write it because it makes me feel, but it does make me feel great. But I always think of Billy, Billy Joel, Billy Joel. What should we say? Billy Joel. Billy Joel. Yeah, well, Dubliners, we have to be Billy Joel. We have to be yeah. Phil Linnets as well. We're not Phil Linnets. Yeah, yeah. I heard that recently, actually. Well, there's a strong argument for Linnets, but he used to say Linnets. So that's all I want to know. Yeah, 100%. Anyway, so, uh, but Billy Joel used to say, you know, he hated the process of writing because 
it'd just be, oh, I'd be, and I've had that. I've been like not able to sleep because I'm like, ah, fucking lying, I can't write. You know, and then I met, eventually met Ray Davies and people like that. And Ray famously had this song called Only a Dream, I think it was, yeah, from the Phobia album, the last King's official album, 93. Picture who was supporting them on that tour in the stadium. And I was there. And their drummer left that night. So at the end of the set, he fucked the sticks in the air and ran off. And he legged it. Supporting the Kings. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's it, I'm done. But... Uh, so this only a dream track. He started writing it in 1973, I think. And the line he was waiting to finish on it came to him in Clonakilty, sitting at a bar, you know, probably down in the, the bars, you know, one of those places. <clears throat> 20 years later or so, he was 20 years finding this one line. Now, I've never been that bad. <laughs> and in fairness to Ray, because he's a god. But, you know, again, these are the greats, so they have their own. I really don't enjoy the process but my God, when you do something good, like yesterday I did about three or four things because I woke up and I just went, Ugh. and it's like you're being carried by something into the other room where the guitar is. And I'm going, you know, pushing back at this, you know, Star Trek kind of green fucking thing. No, no, no. And you pick it up and go, la, la, la. And like 30 minutes later, I had about three or four great ideas. And that's what is wonderful about it that's what I love about it but having the physical product at the end artwork beautiful uh, proofread to death you know it was mistakes I hate you know I'm very OCD with all that so it's the process and it's the magic and, uh, Tom, Thomas you mentioned their work with Ray Davis and uh, but you yeah. worked with Jeff Lynn as well how yeah. did it how did it come about that you got working with these two guys and what was that like well that's the thing Derek asking about the music and in a way and it was the music because, you know, with Jeff Lynn, there's a really great story with Jeff Lynn. But a friend of mine, Ken Simpson, who played with Neil Innes, he was playing with Neil. When Neil went to America, Neil Innes, my friend would hook up with him. Of course, the seventh point to jump ahead was this big movie that was made for Neil Innes. Uh, like, and it hasn't come out yet. Do you know about this film? It's, the, it's called a seven pointing because he was the seven pointing, you know, Neil Innes. He was in all the films and writing all the songs, wrote all the Brave Sir Robin songs, you know, and all the classic stuff, you know. And he's an unsung hero in a lot of ways. So they made this movie. And it's got, of course, it's got all the pointings in it. It's got everyone in it, you know, uh, all these actors, all these incredible people. Now, another Bonds are getting a lot of their stuff together. The Bonds of Dog do that band that he was in in the 60s. I think it's clearing itself up. So that, that documentary is yet to come out. You know, I think you can find it on YouTube. I think it's up there. But it's brilliant because it's all like, it's a brilliant documentary. Anyway, they went to a screening of it in LA and uh, Neil invited Ken, my mate. And my mate at the time had copies of Jollity on him. My 2005 album that had It's Nice to Be Nice uh, on it. Still has it on it. I haven't taken it off for any weird reason. And... He used to go around with copies of this record because he was so blown away by it. He used to kind of, when he knew he was going out to places, he'd bring some copies. So I'd send him a little box or something. But he went to the premiere right, in LA. And everyone was there, of course, all the points. But he sat with Neil, of course, and Neil and him sat there with Ken Thornton on the left. And next of all, there's two seats in front and he sees this guy coming in. It's Jeff Lynn with his then girlfriend, I think it was. 
Rosie Vela. Do you remember Rosie Vela? She had that magic smile song. Oh. Donald Fagan wrote it for her. Big star, but Jeff went out with her for a while. Jeff, I sat right in front of him with his hat, you know, and the curly hair. <laughs> Ken was there, you know. Jeff, Jeff. So of course they watched the whole thing, it was brilliant, and they all laughed, it was great fun. And he stood up at the end, as you do, and Jeff stretched and turns around, and Ken goes, eh, do you mind if I give you this? And Jeff goes, oh, well, okay. And then he goes, oh, I know this band. Uh, they covered one of my own songs on YouTube. And I had, I did a version of On With The Show by The Idol Race, which is Jeff's first band. It was the B-side of my Act of Sea single that I did on that 11 Modern Antiquities album. And I did it with Neil Hannon as on it because this is just before we did Duckward Lewis Method together. So we were starting to hang out a lot. I got him in to play and sing on it, you know, he does, he does the high bits in the chorus. So it's a really cool version, you know, and of course there's not a lot of Idol Race covers out there. And it got a lot of, it got a lot of coverage, you know, good hits on YouTube. So, so he'd seen it and obviously had permeated back to Jeff. He goes, oh, I heard that. That's pretty good. I, oh, thank you very much. So he left, put it in his pocket. And Ken says to me, he says, he says, I kept an eye on him because we all went to the foyer had a few drinks and he says, I kept an eye on him because I've, I've given many CDs to people and they just fucked him in the bin, you know, <laughs> uh, you know straight away, whatever, I'll just get rid of that. And uh, sadly, we've all done it in a way. But um, he says, just as he was leaving, Jeff's walking boy was girl and they're leaving, they're gone as well. And he, he looks over and he catches Ken's eye and he goes, I've still got it, you know, and he lifts the CD out of his pocket. Which is quite cool. And did he tell you he'd given it to him and you were, were you waiting on the response or did he, you only hear back? Through MySpace, Ken said, you remember MySpace? Yeah. Remember MySpace? Did you go back uh, there now? I have to be honest, I, I never got into MySpace now. Did you never get into it? Well, see, it was great for musicians. Yeah. It was great for putting tracks up and it was great for a musical thing. So it was early, you know, it was early, I don't know what it was, early something. But it was, there's still a space for it, I think, even though Facebook covers everything now, that's what it is. Is, is Bandcamp more akin to... Um, well, Bandcamp, music. yeah, is strictly music. MySpace was socialising and music. It just didn't get it quite right. But it was a huge influence on Facebook, obviously, because it was there before. So he got in touch with me, Ken. He says, I, I met your friend last night. You know, so I used to drink a lot back in the day. And they were like, who's that? And he goes, oh, Jeff Lynn. And he was at the... Fucking hell. So even the story was a real buzz, you know. He told me he gave it to him, and that was it. So that was around 2009. And I was starting off with the Duckworth Lewis method. Uh, it, it, incredible fucking journey at that time. So it was already blurry for a couple of years. Um, but during the recording of the Olympus Sound, which was a Choice Music nominated album, I say that because it's the only one at this moment. I'm disappointed about that simply because we never got... Uh, that was George Bourne. It was George, my dear friend, George Bourne. George Bourne, really, right on the cusp of cool and wonderful. A great writer, great historian, just a great guy. Very sad he's not with us. Yeah. George Bourne told us that Duckward Lewis, the first one, was, was the winner. Uh, and he left the room. He was on the committee, you know, that night. And he left the room and it was the winner. He says, next thing you knew... Uh, I think Aiden Crowley was being read out was the winner on stage Olympus Sound was nominated and we were so chuffed 
worked very hard on that record. But during the recording of that record, I went home from one of the sessions. We were doing it in Exchequer Studios, uh, which was Nick Seymour's studio, Crowded House in Dublin. And, you know, Nick is, again, he played in all the Duckworth Lewis stuff, the second stuff. Second he lives album. here, doesn't he? He lives in Ireland. He lives, on the he lives in Vanesky, yeah, up in Sligo, uh, as his main place, you know. And so, yeah, I think he's at home at the moment, I think. Anyway, uh, during the recording the Olympus, I went home to my little bed sitting crumb in that house, and I seen a letter on the ground, and it was like from America. I was like, well, start singing the Proclaimers. Anyway, <laughs> uh, went in, you had the usual you know, food forced, you know, been a long day, fuck that. Sandwich, probably either match of the day or something, probably a weekday, maybe friends on the videotape. <laughs> Slightly pre-Sky Digital and all that. I opened the letter eventually, and I opened it with a knife because I went, I'm not going to rip this out. This looks this looks weirdly personal, so I might just... So I opened it with a knife. Nice. Which I never do, which is weird. And I opened it up, and I just saw... Hi, Thomas. Uh, then I looked at the bottom, and seen Jeff Lynn's signature. I was like, what the fuck is this? Jesus. And it was a letter from Jeff Lynn. Wow. About... Pugwash, what you love, stuff. And, and in that instant, did you go back to when you were a kid, listening to all that stuff? Everything was always went through your head. Well, I went back to being a kid because I pissed myself. <laughs> so that was the first thing I did, because as, as a kid, I did that a lot, you know? <laughs> no, I really did. I, I froze. And the amazing thing was, because it was about, you know, the session ends late, it was about two in the morning. Uh, I wasn't. I rang Tosh, my guitar player, because I knew he'd still be up. He'd go home and have instead of have, well, he'd have ten cups of tea, but he'd also have sixty smokes out the back garden in Kulak. So he that's the way he wound down the session. Uh, Joey would go home and sleep on the way up the stairs. That's the drummer. He just collapse, and Sean was in a. Oh, Sean was with Tosh. So Sean was already in bed on his phone. She was girlfriend. So I rang Tosh. I said, I can't believe this. Anyway, next morning I brought it into the session and I'd already put it into a frame. I stood outside the hardware in Crumlin to buy a frame. And it's, it's inside somewhere. It's in one of the boxes because I've still loads of boxes to, to open up to hang stuff or whatever in a new place. Uh, but yeah, it was an amazing moment, you know, because he's, I just remember being the thankful. Hello, how are you? Have you been alright? Through all those lonely, 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 lonely nights That's what I'd say I'd tell you everything If you'd pick up that Now, Tom, you say you should never meet your heroes. What was it like when you met these guys? I can't say how amazingly cool and wonderful he is. He's funny. He, of course, he's articulate. He's, he's so sarcastic. He's so fucking... It's the dark humour, which I love. Uh, brilliant story, by the way. First went to his house in LA when he invited me over to the house with my other half who lives and works in LA. Yeah, Katya. And... Hello, Katya. And... We went to his house and he, he was there with his his current girlfriend 
uh, Camellia Cat. And Camellia was married to Terry Cat from Chicago. Do you remember the guy who accidentally shot himself uh, with the gun? He was in Chicago. One of the greatest guitar players has ever been. You should check him out. But he famously went to a party in the late 70s. And he just married Camellia. She was only 19 then or something. And they were messing with a gun. And they, he thought it was, wasn't loaded. And there was one bullet in it and he shot himself. Jeez. Famous story. Great documentary on his life. Amazing guitar player. So she was there and they had like a dinner, a little dinner set out. And of course, I was absolutely planking myself. You know, you know, he's all of a sudden he's physical. He's the hair and the beard. And the, you can see his eyes to the the ray the aviator glasses and, and he's just he's there's the voice and i'm like <laughs> but you know i did the first thing i did was i asked to go to the toilet because i really want to go to the toilet so i went in typical dubliner but there was a lovely kind of like a water crystal thing over the toilet beautiful little statue and i just had to so i came out of the toilet and i had it in my hand and i went straight over the catches stick that in your bag will you? and he was the two of them were just looking at me and they were like I went, I'm only joke, and of course, big laugh. You know, it was yeah, humor with him anyway. And so we're sitting down, we're having a chat in the garden, and he's talking about. And I said, "Look, Jeff, I have to tell you this story. Went to see in 1986 in Wembley Stadium. I was only 16. We slept rough for two days in Houston Station, Houston Station in London. And we got in. We had the tickets though, and we, you know, and you were special guest to Rod Stewart and the Blow Monkeys and uh, Fatal Sharky were the other acts that was the lineup. this is 86 I think exactly a year after Live Aid July and he says oh, oh you seen that one did you you know he's always very funny with his comebacks oh you were there for that he says yeah slept rough and all Jeff slept rough <laughs> Late has a 16 year old you know sticking the sticking the bad influence you wear <laughs> punk rockers and all this stuff and satanic stuff and and he goes, oh, we, uh, we okay? And I said, well, I'm here now, you know, it's, it's all good. And uh, I says, but I always wanted to ask you, because you came on and you sang Twilight. It was a big yellow song from the Time album. I said, oh, it was amazing to hear Twilight. Though. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I says, but you were pissed. Honestly, and of course, being a fan, I know loads that he probably doesn't know. But for the whole year of 86, he was getting Elvis ELO to That was the last album. He was, he'd done it, so he was free. He was going to work with George. That was all at the early stages. And he turns around and he, he says to me, oh, I don't think I was drinking at, at that time. I know a video of him in the Montreux Jazz Festival, you know, the Rock Festival they did in Montreux and all. Off his tits, <laughs> drunk. You know, it's a famous clip. They're staggering around Montreux, being interviewed by like MTV or something. And, uh, I don't think it was. And Camelia goes, no, I don't think. And she didn't know him then, but she goes, no, I think Jeff was. I thought Jeff, I think you were for that tour. You, you only did a few shows. And yeah, they only did about five shows. It was the last of ELO. And he's going, yeah, yeah. Kept it quite easy then and just happy to get out of it. And she goes, yeah, I don't think Jeff was really drinking then. But anyway, catch you. So she starts talking to my other half. And I looked at Jeff and the glasses and he tips his glasses over and he just goes, this total wink. <laughs> I was like, you're fucking 
lying. Because <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> I sitting there even in 2000 or whatever it was, 2016, the first time I went out in LA, and he was lying to a sick woman he didn't even know. Do you think you had a lot of hard... Kind of, you know, people wouldn't play their stuff. I know there's a few Irish DJs who want to touch their stuff. Like, do you think they got to, they're coming back around again? Kind of went through the Abaru and you know the, the BGs. Yeah, well, th- this is why I can totally say you're dead right, and the, and the proof is there because through all that ridiculous nonsense, especially about them miming. Because even if I say miming to you now on ELO, I'm sure you's even know what I'm talking about. That famous video they brought out of Wembley yeah. where they were. Cl- they were accused of miming. Now, the thing was, there was backing tracks. Of course there was, because they had 80-piece orchestras on their songs. And Jeff hated playing live anyway. So the only reason he'd get out and do a big tour was if he could try and recreate what he did in the studio. So, of course, it's standard issue now for any act to have backing tracks. The whole world uses them. U2 used them. Metallica used them. Everybody uses them. They were just way ahead of the game. And of course, with them being trendsetters in that thing, they got it arse ways. So on that particular video, what simply happened was the sound mixer mixed the backing tracks up too loud. And what people might know about is that it came back out in its real incarnation in the late 2000s, 2009 and 10 on DVD and Blu-ray. It's absolutely phenomenal because they were a brilliant band live. Of course, they were f- incredible. Blew people away when he went to see them. And, you know, it wasn't because of the backing tracks. They're a brilliant band. So that video is out there now in, in its reel with the tracks mixed into where they were supposed to be. And it's a fantastic performance. It's the only one to play. But that DVD was so big back in the late 70s and 80s, that video cassette. Because if you went into every video shop, it would be there in the music section as one of the only music releases, they were way ahead in that because he stopped touring for those years. So the Jet Records and whatever, Sony had to put stuff out. So they made all these videos and stuff. So they became a visual band in that respect. But they got a lot of flack from that. From idiots who don't know any better, but it was an easy thing to jump on because they were hairy and it was orchestras and then punk hit. But the thing was, all these punky people, I'd see stuff in articles and magazines, They'd never say them as being the cause of punk. It was always Emerson, Lake and Palmer or Yes. It was always those bands because they really went into a lot of heavy, you know, progness. That is nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with any genre of music for fuck's sake. It's just certain things can precede, you know, a, a phenomenon like punk. And it was definitely that kind of music that was, you know. But then again, there was like always bands like Sailor, a glass of champagne, you know, in the mid seventies with guys dressed as old British dandies and all. I mean, they were having hits. Yeah, Manhattan transfer. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, but again, they're still loved now because they've made good fucking
if, if you're talking about people being dressed as dandies and, and uh, different genres of music, we have to ask you about the Lewis Duckworth method. Well, that's a good segue there, Derek. Yeah, well, good segue. Can you say it the right way around, Derek? <laughs> yes, I do. Duckworth Lewis. Yeah. The Duckworth Lewis method. Well, I'll tell you, you won't be the first one to say Lewis Duckworth. We have journalists from all over the world saying Lewis Duckworth. I was going, now, hold on a minute. Right, it's Neil Hannon in the band yeah. with me, right? So he's the star, right? I know that I was unknown at the time, pretty much. Obviously, in the bigger scheme of things, I was. But I was saying, but look, you know, it's called Duckwood Lewis. I'm Duckwood. You know, give me that. <laughs> give me the first name. Because the first 10 interviews I did of the first ever promo we did, I didn't get asked a question by British journalists. They oh. sit in the room in front of me with Neil. <laughs> And he asked Neil all the questions. Now, I was prepared, obviously, for a lot of Neil, of course. And Neil would say things like, don't worry about that, you know, and all that, because he's always, he's so honest about stuff, you know, but he just got on with it. But with the uh, the Duckworth-Lewis method. Yes. I mean, I'm sure there wasn't a lot of cricket in Drimina growing up in the 80s. So well, where was- did the idea of the concept album well, this come is in? The thing, you know, if you went to Kilwood Road, you would have seen a hell of a lot of cricket simply because we're working class people, of course, and, you know, love sport. Sport is an integral part of our lives. But when I saw, when I was off school, and of course BBC back in the day, there was not one of the channels, there was four channels still. Uh, this is, actually there was three. This was before Network 2 and Channel 4. Yeah. So there was three channels. BBC 1, BBC 2, RTE. Three channels, people. And uh, so BBC One, when the Test Cricket was on, in the summer would show the Test Cricket. So Test Cricket starts at 10.30 in the morning, 11 o'clock, and goes right through at 6 in the evening, half six. So from a Thursday to a Tuesday, because that, they were the five days of a test, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday. That was the five days. So the test went the full length down to the last day, it was five days long. So summer holidays, of course, we're Irish. Some summer days weren't quite lovely. You know, some summer days were pissing. I just happened to be in one day when, and of course, this is not, if you're not too old okay with the cricket world, this is 1981, the famous Ashes series against Australia, when Ian Bolton, half-pissed, went out and knocked the ball always for Sunday and just looked amazing because he was a brilliant-looking guy and, Beefy, of course, is, is his nickname. And he, he used to say things like, I, I hit the ball for six and for four because I didn't want to run. Now, he's my kind of idol. So I've been hearing all this, and I, I just sat one day watching it, and he, I just happened to get in on the 81 Ashes series because a lot of people could have dipped into cricket and got some crappy test with Sri Lanka in 1979 where it was just them tipping it about. And you just go, what the hell is that? And then you'd never watch it again. I went in at the heart of history, really, with England and Australia. Because that's such a historic test. Probably the team music that got you into it as well. They're the best uh, team song, aren't they? Well, team song was amazing. Booker T and MGs, brilliant. Richie Benno was like an idol who used to introduce it, the Australian guy. So cool, great accent. So I just fell in love with it because it was a sport and you could whack a ball. So, you know, I did me horror and did the GAA, playing in Crow Park for Michael's school when I was a kid. You know, the usual shit. But suddenly then there's people, there's kids that are twice your size 
at that age and they're the ones getting picked. So I didn't, you know, I went off my little chubby arse with uh, my own way. So football, of course, still. And then I saw cricket and I love tennis, Bjorn Borg, another idol hero, you know, McEnroe Connors, Vita Scarolitis, all these incredible people. And it's so cricket. And I, and I said to me, Dad, this is amazing. Oh, can I play cricket? And he was like, I don't want to play now to play cricket. I fucking do. You know, my dad loved all the sports as well, like cricket. I love cricket. But he was like, where do I get my son a cricket set in Dublin? So do you know where he went? Frawley's. <laughs> I picked them up. We had them. I remember playing as well. We played it badly, but, you know. And there was a set in a plastic bag with a little bat, a kind of a hard rubber ball, but you know, one you could probably bite bits out of if the if the dog got to it, you know. <laughs> and uh, and stumps with the little, you know, yeah. with uh, the cricket stumps. How did the band come together? Was was it a mutual love of cricket, or was it? Did you drive it? I, I was presuming it was Neil Hannon who was driving that. Well, a lot of people, a lot of people do, you know. But that's the thing to jump forward. So we played a lot on the street. We drew, and it's still on the wall if you can go and look. This is the amazing thing. We drew stumps on the wall in Kilwood Road in Germany uh, to play. So we play in the street. So we put it over the other side, the other uh, sidewalk, uh, curb, whatever you want to call it, and uh, throw the ball, we'd whack it. Now, of course, the Tory house was over the wall, so we lost a lot of balls. We tried to hit it up the road, down the road. Then we went to the Phoenix Park, we'd play. It would be more expansive, you could play and just go up and have a laugh. But what well, I did, I asked Neil to be on my charity single in 20, in 2006, uh, Tinsel and Marzipan, was for Irish uh, epilepsy, through Ricochet. I did this song and I asked Neil to be involved. Very lucky, Graham Lennon, who I knew, because Graham was, uh, asked me to be the band for his wedding in 2003 and that's where I officially met Neil but I didn't meet him meet him we just had a quick chat and I had it I had an ELO badge on and he went oh I love ELO and that was it but we didn't see each other there we didn't know but Graham lost his mobile around 2006 I sent out an email to everyone saying I've lost my phone get in touch with me here and Neil's Hannah's email was on it I seen it and I went okay I'm doing this charity song I want to do a bit of doorstepping and I asked him because I remember he was an ELO fan and he said he'd love to do it. He'd actually heard a few bits of Pogwash things. So, got on really well. And then coming back from the session the day he was there, there was a report on some cricket match on the radio. And I was talking in the front seat, as you know I can do. And Neil's in the back and he goes, uh, sorry, Thomas, can I just uh, interrupt you there? I know you're not going to be interested in this, but can I hear that bit about the cricket? And I went, what do you mean I wouldn't be interested? I fucking love cricket. I was like, the violin music, we fell in love. But that's what, exactly how it happened, mutual love of the game. But that didn't mean anything because what I meant to him was that Neil just invited me to write with him for different projects, Kylie Minogue, Tom Jones, all these ridiculous things that never got picked up. But we started writing songs and hanging out and we could actually write together. And I never wrote with anybody and he never wrote with anybody per se, really. And we could sit down together and we could have a lot of fun and we could write songs. So all that happened was we're in the lower deck one night having a few drinks and we came up with the idea of this psychedelic band 
uh, I definitely said the Duckworth Lewis method as a name simply because to me forever that's been a psychedelic band name if there ever was one and then, but then Neil started going okay test match special uh, and all these titles and he wrote them all down in his book and the next day he looked at it and he says it was the only time he ever looked at his little book the next day and went after drinking I didn't tear the page out because it's normally waffle he looked at it the next day and went this kind of makes a lot of sense so we just started demoing some songs that's exactly how it started very well very well received great great uh, accolades absolutely I mean you know obviously culminating in the the Ivor Novello nomination uh, for the first album which was absolutely I can't tell you waking up in my bed which I had a cushion in my bed at the time because the middle of the mattress the springs were sticking up like daggers (laughs) and of course, you get into it. I'd, go, I'd wake up every morning changing the sheets because of blood. Honestly, because I'd be moving in the night and it would get through. So I had cushions on my bed. I just the bed seat where the mice live better than I did. Check it out. I brought in, what are they called? Humane traps. You get rid of the mice because you know, I'm a bit of an animal lover. And I'd, even with mice, they're all little furry things, you know. But you don't want them in your house. Oh. They are flat. But I says, I'll get a humane trap in. He fucking just walked, walked in oh taking the cheese, taking the jam. I was looking at them. Well, check it out. I woke up Christmas morning one year and my chocolate Santi had fallen over at the at the end of me little tree. And I went, how did that fall over? Because you have to be like a, an air tremor, you know, to knock something like that over. Because I'm the only one in the flat and I was in bed asleep. So what am I doing in my fucking sleep? So I went over and the bottom of his base, his little sandy base, was all nibbled. Fucking mouse had been there having a Christmas. That was a final straw. That was, that was it. <laughs> so I got, I got a call that morning on that bed with the mice. And it was like, Ivan Novello have nominated you for excellence in songwriting for Douglas Lewis. Well, unbelievable. Very special, yeah. Uh, and my proudest moment musically, even though I've walked through all these people and all that, it's... That's fantastic. Got so close. I mean, I swear to God, I've got so many great stories that day. The, the lineup over the years of Pug, Pugwash has changed dramatically. Yeah. Uh, but you being the central pivotal figure, always. Is that to keep the music fresh? Is that to keep uh, you know the sound alive? What are you talking about, Derek? Because <laughs> that sounds professional. No, not at all. Uh, I mean, it sounds professional for me, is what I'm saying. No, it never anything like that. It's I never think of fresh. You know, my dad used to eat bread stale because he liked when it was crispy. Don't do with being miserable. He just liked hard bread. That's something I never knew about until his later years. But uh, maybe when he's gone a bit too lally, you know, he likes stale bread. But now it's not to do with any of that at all. It, it, everything obviously revolves around me because it's my thing. And I don't mean that because I had the greatest band I've ever had 
everyone I've ever played with are legends of Irish music. They really are. These are people like you're talking about, you know, some people who are musical directors for, you know, Clapton and Tina Thorne, all these people, all these incredible artists. Uh, the sidekicks are only getting their due now, aren't they? Because there's been a sidekick documentary. And, uh, you know, uh, and there should be more. Dave Grohl is doing some of that kind of stuff where he's talking about people on the outside and the, uh, driving your van and, you know, all the other elements of music that are so important. I have had the greatest players. I've been so lucky. But they never get in touch with me and say, I'm, I'm writing a Pugwash album. I, I'm Pugwash. It's what I do. So when I write something, I then think about how I want to record it. So I actually pick the people. But when I had a band, which was the real band, which was me, Tosh Flood, Sean McGee, Joey Fitzgerald, as a re- we gave it a go in our mid-40s. By the way, don't ever do that. Coast-to-coast American tours in your mid-40s. Holy shit. We actually got close to death. You know, people get close to death in their 20s when they're touring because they're taking heroin. You know what I mean? Or whatever they're doing, drinking four bottles of vodka at night. We were just having to sit on the same chair in a van for nine hours. We'd all get out of it. We'd be like, oh, ah, you know, four hours to recover. We'd have to get straight on the stage. You know, we were doing gigs sitting down and all. Eight-year-old like, like blues bands. But, you know, so it was, but they were the greatest of friends. They are great friends. We'd never fall out. And it's just that we had to bring it to an end. So, but every but the but the pugwash thing, as you say, Derek, it doesn't die. It just regenerates. All that phoenix crap or whatever, you know, the terminator getting shot in the eye or something. You know, it just all comes back to an eyeball and uh, starts again, just in a different way. And Thomas, the pugwash sound has been compared to like Beatles, Beach Boys, Ecstasy, Corsi ELO. Uh, if you had to pick one, which is most favourable? I know you don't like these lazy comparisons, but which one would be most favourable? But now you're, you're quoting from me, quoting, quoting. From, yeah, quoting, yeah. Quoting. <laughs> I like that. Because the funny thing, I said the lazy comparisons thing year, 20 years ago, probably to George Bones. I called him George Bones there. <laughs> the, He's rolling in his grave. George, forgive me. But, uh, so but I, I said that simply because Michael Penn, who's another hero of mine, somewhere, uh, Michael Penn said back in the day that because his music was compared to the Beatles, his early stuff. And he just said he thought it was a lazy comparison because anything with a melodic content is automatically compared to the Beatles because they were the kings of melody and they almost, they didn't invent it, but they brought it to a popness. They brought it to the world. You know, there was artists making, uh, and you know, Rogers the Hammerstein and Cole Porter, now they were writing incredible Sondheim and they were writing incredible songs, songs we'll never forget. Melodies to die for, but the Beatles packaged it into four geezers from a from a, a very downtrodden place in England and gave it to the world, and it was stunning. You know the harmonies, the melodies, the chord changes. You know it was really strong, even though there was a lot of Buddy Holly in the Beatles, obviously. So, you know you can track back, but the Beatles would be the main one people would go to for the melody thing. So it's lazy in that respect because I can't avoid it. If I'm going to write a song that has a bit of melody in it, you're going to say that. But as I said, getting on to, you know, but people have a nice pork chop, you know, you don't say it reminds me of the pig. You know, just for some reason, by the way, that kind of made sense in my head. And I think it, as an analogy, 
it still mm-hmm. might make sense. But what I'm saying is, it, it, with music, they tend to interviewers tend to say, yeah, "I don't mean yourselves." I mean, journalists yeah. rolling it out. Yeah, you tend to go, "Oh yeah, this, that, the other." It's like uh, Thomas. If you read a good book and you educate yourself, your vocabulary will improve. So, yeah. by listening to more records, it's going to improve what you put out. So, it's it's the same thing. It's absolutely the same thing, and that's that is a bit of an inside thing with music. If you want a little inside thing about the, the process, is that so much of that stuff obviously is inside you, and then when you sit to write something, uh, you've no control over what comes out in, in, and in what way. So, I've written a few songs over the years where. Straight away, I've gone, okay, that sounds like one I did a few years ago. So I get a bit antsy about that. and I'd want to change it. Obviously, I wouldn't want it. If there was a, a lot of good stuff in the rest of the song I was writing, it wouldn't bother me. It'd just be, okay, it's me. I can take, I can take the, I can rip myself off. I won't take myself to court <laughs> like the Ruttles, you know, <laughs> when he accidentally took each other to court because <laughs> there were so many lawsuits going on. So, you know, I don't mind that sometimes, but then sometimes you go, oh, God, that's exactly, that's the Beatles. That's actually a Beatles melody there. But the rest of the song is actually really good and original. And, of course, you didn't mean this, but you go, okay. So you have to sit down then for about an hour and change the melody enough that it's not like that. And you're still happy with what you've done with the rest of the song. That's a, a part of the process that's, that's a little tough because... You have to change what naturally came out. What naturally came out of George Harrison when he sat down and wrote My Sweet Lord was My Sweet Lord. Mm-hmm. So they're talking about nowadays that they should never... Uh, you know, Derek, you're making a, a funny face there, which I'll get to you in a second, but the thing is, it's like they're saying now that these lawsuits should never happen simply because there's no intent there. You know the way intent is a huge thing with football and all kinds of things yeah. and with the law. So why shouldn't it apply in the music law? Because there was clearly no intent by George Harrison to sit there and go, ooh, the chiffons. Yeah. You know, there's no one. For such a talent, like in George Harrison, an underrated yes. talent, and one who didn't, yeah. wouldn't never put himself forward. Wouldn't no, have I mean, to be dragged he was, forward. He was on a roll at that time. He was the best songwriter in the Beatles around that time. Not that kind of thing. Because he, yeah. he was at the right, here comes the song, something, you know, all these incredible songs. And he had all these other songs like Isn't It Pity, uh, What Is Life, Wow Wow, all these amazing songs. Like, all Things Must Pass on that album. They were all Beatles songs, obviously. And uh, and so he didn't have to prove anything, obviously. But, of course, he lost that case. And he wrote a song called This Song, which the lyrics were, this song, there's nothing, stra- there's nothing strange about it. And it was a song in, you know, in response to that. It's on his 1976 album, 33 and a Tour, available from all good record stores. 33 and a Tour. Yeah. That's a good one for the artist to say. and a Tour. But yeah. yes, um, so that's another part of the process. But uh, we were getting, we were, Derek, you're actually making a face about George. You think he may have? Oh, no, 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 no. It, it was just, a, it, it, but it's so similar. I remember seeing a, a documentary mm-hmm. years ago and it was about this. It was about, you know, Noel Gallagher ripping off the coke advertisement. Yeah. And uh, it was, then they don't, we're doing side by side comparison. And some of them, you see them now, it's happening all the time now. Uh, what's his name? Now, Uptown Funk got done. Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars got done. Yes. Um, 
Well, so, so many. But again, like you said, I think just so you know, many cards. a musical note. If, if you have a musical a series of chords that someone is saying, oh, this is from an obscure B-side from 1972. Yeah, that's why a case is, is totally applicable because, you know, do you know this story about this Irish guy? Now, this is something which, you know, I, I think you'll appreciate in a way, but Jellyfish, do you remember Jellyfish? Yeah. Remember the name. So, again, my last album, Silver Lake, was done with Jason Faulkner in Los Angeles. Jason was in Jellyfish for the first Jellyfish album. Then Jason went on to the, the Greys, which were a great band with John Bryan, who ended up producing Kanye West and all this stuff. John Bryan does all these soundtracks. And great band, one album. Then Jason went solo, and then he joined Beck and Air, yeah. and now tours with, uh, still tours with Beck. I was on with St. Vincent, actually, on Saturday Night Live a few weeks ago, playing the guitar. Great guy, right? Top session player. Played with McCarthy as well on his Chaos and Creation album. Amazing guy. But uh, on the first Jellyfish album, there's a song called I Wanna Stay Home. But it was a really lovely song. One of their singles from the album, because Jellyfish were so out of whack at the time. It was late 80s, early, before Manchester, at the end of the 80s with the, all the dance music and stuff, and they were right in the middle of this 60s psychedelia pop. Ridiculous. But because they were so out of time, they did cut in to the psyche a little bit, especially with the first album. Second album's a lot better, but it died on its arse. And so they released this album. I want to say Home was a big radio hit in Ireland because they, a lot of their stuff was played in Ireland. Baby's Coming Back, The King is Half Undressed. The Baby's Coming Back song was released in a nappy pack. Anyway, I want to say Home was like a radio hit for like two weeks in Ireland and England or whatever. And this guy from fucking County Carroll or something, this like singer-songwriter guy in the, in the late 90s, released I Want to Stay Home and said it was his own song. I, of course, I was a big fan. And of course, there was loads of big fans. I mean, Dave Fanning went to London, I remember the time, to interview them. And he had a special on them on his show on RTE. And things like that. And I psyched out to RTE because I thought they were in RTE. And I went out with my mate. He said, let's go out, you know. And uh, I remember Dave leaving the studio that night because it was a pre-record. And I was outside. I went, is Jellyfish with you? And he goes, no, sorry, lads. I pre-recorded that in London. Shit. And I went, bye, you bollocks. You know, <laughs> before I got to know Dave, in the, that was many years ago. But that was pretty cool because they were, they were quite unknown. But, you know, we knew them. You know, people to the, in the know knew them, as you say. So what was the outcome? Was he done? He was done, but the thing was, he, he literally would go, I remember, no, you, you can Google it, because I think, I haven't Googled it in a while, but I remember Googling it a good few years ago, because I told someone else this story, an American friend of mine, it may have even been Jason, I told. And I Googled it, and it came up. So, uh, do you know what, because I have your details now, let me have a look for that, just to, because I mean, that's an Irish music yeah. story that only Ireland could produce. Yeah, no, do send around, that'd be great. And you're talking about rare, you know the way in the Father Ted episode? Yeah, I was thinking that as you're talking. Here's my lovely horse, you know, <laughs> and it was a B-side of a rare single. <laughs> now, these things actually happen. This guy just, and I remember hearing, and I said, oh, someone's covered, I want to stay home with Jellyfish. And then he said, this is a new actor, blah, 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 and he writes all his own songs. I'm like, you fucking write that one. Is he still going or has he been finished? No, I, I haven't a clue, but I'll tell you, it's a great story. Oh, look, check that out. Definitely. Yeah, I, I, 
It's like I when they brought it. England out of, out of zoo, didn't they? They brought it to the party. <laughs> they brought it back. Yeah. I told American friends that story and they didn't believe me. Yeah. And then you Google it and hallelujah, it's all there. It's good to be good and it's fun to be I have to ask you, Thomas, of all the plaudits and all of the positive reviews you've got, what was it like when Brian Wilson said, you know, it's nice to be nice off Jollity was one of his favourite songs? I mean, that just must have been like the cherry. Yeah. Um, again, that was a series of events that could only be, you know, and the great thing is when you don't instigate stuff like this, you know, I don't send people to love records. I rarely do it. I actually nearly did it to Francis Rossi a few years ago because Francis Rossi is such an ELO fan and I love Francis Rossi. I mean, I'm not a huge collector of, of Quo. I mean, I collect so much vinyl and stuff, but Quo between 67 and 71, I, I have everything. I'm early Quo fan, but I love late Quo, but I just don't collect it. Yeah. Well, Francis Rossi, I mean, he's a fuck, he's a god. You know, who doesn't love Francis Rossi? And but, so I nearly sent him some. Like, but anyway, what had happened was I never released this Nice to Be Nice as a single. That never came out as a single. That's why. Uh, it's, it's so melodic. Um, the, 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 the vocal on it is, you could see why Brian Wilson would, would, would have an affinity to that particular track. Well, I'll tell you what I, I, I didn't plan at all with that song. The word nice, right? He, he loves the word nice. It's, I think it's his favourite word in the world. And that's something I didn't know at the time. And of course, he loves ice cream. And, you know, Brian is a real simple man. And uh, such an incredible, oh God, you know. At the throne with, with the Beatles, you know, he's up there. Yeah. Ray Davis on the other side, you know, and these people. They're, they're all, anyway. And I was thinking... Right, I want to make this a slightly Beach Boysy track because I got so into them in the late 90s, early few thousands, that the first two albums are songs I had built up over the previous 10 years from the late 80s up to the early 2000s. And I was like, okay, now my current loves are coming through. So on that tour album, Jollity, it, it, it stepped up big time uh, with expansive, you know, we did recorded strings and Abbey Road and Stuff like that. Again, they were all circumstances that we didn't instigate. They all happened naturally. Incredible. Won't go into that. Save us to hell. But um, with the Brian thing, we did promo singles. It was the new label, which was 1969 records to the world. And Dave Kouse from A House. Dave was on the label. Uh, Dave Kouse and The Impossible was his band. And Pugwash. I we started the 69 records label. And so it was one track from Dave and one track from Pugwash, which was it's nice to be nice. So there are only promo singles. But a guy, a friend of mine who traveled from New York with another friend of mine who I got to know through MySpace days, an engineer in LA, they came to Dublin because they were going to do some work with Pugwash. They wanted to do something. My friend in New York, Joe D'Ambrosio, he, he manages producers and people like that. So he manages Tony Visconti and Eno and people like that. Great guy, 
still a great friend. And he kind of came, just wanted to feel the, you know, feel the, the ground and they all loved the stuff. But they took copies of the promos with them. And Joe was working with David Leaf at the time, who was Brian's manager. And again, I've got to know all these people over the years, which is a real great thing because they're wonderful. And David Leaf was all BGs in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, he's the man. And he was working with Brian at this time. David loved it and brought some copies to Brian. Got them in New York, brought them back to LA. Brian wouldn't stop playing in his car. Uh, wouldn't stop playing in the tour bus when he went out on tour that time. And that's why when they were coming to Ireland in 2006, because that's 2005, uh, I got the email from David Leaf again to my MySpace saying, Brian wants to meet you. And that's... And again, I'm in that bed sitting crumbling with the mice. And I, it's really pinched me a moment. And that night, I got that email when I was pissed. And it was four in the morning when I came in because it was a lock-in. In the, in the, by the way, I'm 11 years sober. Fair pleasure. Congratulations. So the lock-in was in the lower deck that night and it was four in the morning. Of course, the owner used to drive me home. And he had a great, it was, let's say he was great, very friendly with the guards, let's just put it that way. <laughs> so he lived up in, just past Cromlin anyway, in Perrystown, I think it was, something like that. And he dropped me off. It was like half hour in the morning, boards twittering. Because I came in, put the computer on, <laughs> 10 minutes to warm up. <laughs> and there was an email in, David Leaf, Brian wants to meet you. So, so I know friends that were awake. So I rang some people I knew in America, drunk, just to tell them Brian Wilson wants to meet me. <laughs> and of course, the accent is bad enough anyway. They can't understand me over there. What was, like? what was it like? What was it like? Well, it was really, it was a quick meeting because I was supposed to meet him at the Q&A before that gig. It was a Tom Dunn Q&A down in Temple Bar. But he was whisked away that night because he got a bit tired. And David came up to me and says, look, Thomas, I'm really sorry. You won't meet him tonight, but the gig tomorrow we have you sorted and he'll see you then. So yeah, that was, went to the gig. Uh, I remember Brent Berry in Vicar Street saying to me, Tom, don't even think about it. Because I came, to, I came to the dressing room door upstairs after the gig. He says, Tom, don't even think about it. No one's meeting him. He's just not one of those. And I says, but I have this certain coloured pass, which is what he didn't even have on us. <laughs> I always loved that. I always remember that. The only time I've ever been rock and roll. And I went, but well, hold on. This thing is gold coloured. Your Wayne's World moment, yeah? It was great. And Brian is a lovely fella now, but you know, me and Brian had a few run-ins over the years because we used to get we used to get supports, but Revelino would, you know, that was his band. They kind of loved the band that were coming in and he ran Vicar Street. So we go, now Revelino's doing it, right? But we'd be able to get the call from the people involved. One great example being television, playing in Vicar Street the night Joey Ramon died. And... Television had asked a pug wash to support. I just said, I'll do it QC. I won't even get you away with gear. We just do it acoustically. So three of us went to do it acoustically, but Brambury, I spent the next three months arguing with Brambury because he he wanted Revelino to, to support television. And I says, I'm not I'm not backing down. They've asked for me, so you can fuck off. He says, It's not gonna happen. 
So, of course, we got into a heavy one. They ended up letting us go on before Revelino. Place was still packed. Still had a great night. Revelino went on and played for about 50 minutes. But Vickerson, yes, yeah, so Brown was there that night. So it was a nice one to kind of go, well, I am mean, getting in. And then Jeffrey Foskey came out from the band and said, Jeffrey, yeah, Brian's waiting for you. So I went there and Brian was just sitting there and he looks at me and it's kind of like, the, so he's, he looks like he's kind of vacant and there's nothing there. And he goes, looks at me and I go, hello, Brian, I just want to say the usual stuff. Can't get, can't get the words out. Yeah. What you mean to be blah, 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 blah. And Jeffrey goes, Brian, this is Thomas. Uh, his band Pugworth wrote the song, It's Nice to Be Nice. And all of a sudden, a light comes on. It's so amazing. He, he is a spiritual guy. I can only say about him. Jeff Lynn is just a brummy beer drinker, glass of wine. Brian Wilson, there's something special, something really special about him. But this light came on and he went, Well, oh, you're a nice to be nice guy. And I went, Yeah. And he goes, It's a great song. He puts thumbs up and I went, Thank you. Uh, can I get a picture? We weren't supposed to get pictures, actually. A friend of mine was with me uh, and he had a throwaway camera. So I just snapped. The amazing thing is, took two pictures only. The first one was the perfect one. I'm leaning over, Brian. And the light is on. He looks so cool. He's spoiling. And I said, thanks. But Frank snapped another one real quick. And it was, the light just went off then. So it's amazing. He has these spans of, uh, he'll come awake for music and for maybe a nice bowl of ice cream or a, a song or a picture, you know, and the light will come on. But when he doesn't need to be on, he'll just knock himself off. But I think that's why he's surviving. Again, an exclusive for yourselves if you want to have it. Yeah. Uh, Brian instigates every tour. The, the, the whole argument, even online and all over the world, and with people, and whether you like it or not, whether you, you feel who cares if he makes a decision anyway, it's, it's wrong. Well, it can't be. He cannot stay at home. Brian has a lot of kids and has adopted kids. So a lot of the kids he's adopt, adopted with his, his, his new wife, uh, you would have seen in the Love and Mercy movie, you know. Uh, they're all hitting, like, puberty now and get like, 16, 17. And they're all, Daddy, 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 let's go to the fair. You know, let's go, let's go on the roundabout. Let's run on the beach. And Brian is there like that. You know, he's bollocks. He's like, he was, they said he wouldn't live through the 70s. I, I seen him in a, in the board gosh a couple of years ago. And yeah. Kieran said they, they had to help him out to the piano. And he, as he's talking, you know, just, he was very, he was almost mumbling. And then he yeah. just played. Ah, da, yeah. da, da, da. The voice was just spectacular. Great, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was, a, it was almost a forced a hard thing to see. That's the spiritual journey he brings you on at a gig and that's why it's essential that he still wants to get out there yeah. I don't care what people say because you go there and but then he'll suddenly go for three minutes and you'll cry you'll be in tears I've seen the greatest moments I've ever seen on stage with that man we were touring with the Blue Tones pub wash in 2011 all around England and we were playing in Glasgow, in Glasgow the night Brian was playing with the band and we'd organised a lot to go and meet everyone after the show, because they were playing the, the Barrowlands, whatever, the big place, or the concert hall or whatever it was in Glasgow. We were playing some O2 with the Blue Tones. So we did our support, and we said to the guys, look, just for tonight, we're going to run up to the Brian Wilson gig. And they were pissed off. They couldn't go, you know, anyway. But we ran up. We had all the passes and everything. 
But there was a break in the show, of course. I mean, we got in easier for the second half of the show. And he started, it was September the 11th, 2011. And the amazing thing is now it's 20 years since 9-11 coming up this year. 20 years. Fucking hell. But that was the 10th anniversary. And Brian says, I'm going to do God only knows for the, on this day for the 10th anniversary of the victims of 9-11. And we were like, well, yeah, that's really cool. He sang it. I swear to God, I've never heard a better version. We were in bits. He nailed it. So that was, I get accused of people thinking about it. So that was amazing, right? Of course. And the rest of the show was brilliant. But at the end of that show, he did one of the greatest things I've ever seen. He could open, because when they do, like they're playing fun, fun, fun or something like the last song before the last encore. Brian gets up from the piano and walks off and the band keep playing. So he gets up and he walks off, but he gets, he just gets before the court and, you know, and he looks back at the audience. Now, I know this is a, this is an audio podcast, but he does the throwing of the arms like, yeah, you know, like the fuck you arms. Yeah. He just kind of goes, yeah. <laughs> and I just, we just, we, you know, talk about rolling on the floor. We were on the ground, lamp. And he did a thing like we went to see Smile. I'm very lucky to see Smile live. Went to Oxford because it wasn't, it didn't get to Ireland. And this Oxford theatre was really, really small and packed. It was amazing. And he does the fire section, which is the one that really blew his mind in 67. So all these flames come up at the front of the stage, all those fake flames. And the band are playing that. It's absolutely. This is stuff that frightens the shit out of you. This is just... And there was a kid in front that I always remember with his father. And he literally put his head in his bosom. Couldn't watch it. But that kid had the greatest experience of his life. I know that kid now is an obsessive because you could not have seen that and not fall in love. It was amazing. But he sat in the middle of all this and he looked at his watch. Like, <laughs> what fucking time is it? <laughs> and there was people, again, were in tears... Like he's playing music that put him into well, basically a mental home or put him into bed yeah. before he used. And he's playing it and he's looking at his watch. It was just oh, it's like God. work. It's like it's, it's like us in work when's this day done. He's such a funny man. He's so brilliant. But he the but the the exclusive for you is that he instigates every tour. Nobody pushes him, nobody says get out there, Brian. Nobody's making money off him. He instigates every bit of it. You mentioned funny man there, Thomas. I've seen a few videos of you, uh, Matt Berry. Did that yeah. come through the Lewis, the, the, the Duckworth method, or was it before that with Pugwash? No, it basically was because Neil had Matt's phone number in his phone because Neil with the IT crowd connection and all that stuff. And of course, another thing about Neil, Neil has numbers in his phone for people he thinks, A, nobody knows. Or, you know, he'd never ring, which is fair enough. Neil's not like that. He's a very down-to-earth guy, really, you know. And so we were doing this track, Mason on the Boundary, on the first up with Lewis Metal album. And there's a bit in the middle where it goes into this lovely change, and it's very summery. And straight away I said, this, 
absolutely reeks of narration, classic narration. Now, we stepped up on the second half because we got Stephen Fry in to narrate on Judd's Paradox, which is a great moment. But then Daniel Radcliffe to narrate on another track became the narration album. But on the first one, I, so I says, Neil, I'm in the studio, I always remember, I says, Neil, go through your phone, will you? And see who we guess. So, of course, we never thought of Stephen Fry, even though he had his number, because we are unknown then. And Neil says, I'm not getting in touch with Stephen Fry. No way. Stephen Fry then tweeted about Dr. Lewis separately when it came out, said he loved it. And that was, it really pushed the album as well. But that's how we got the connection with the second album. But the fourth one, so he's going through, he's going, blah, 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 Matt Berry. And I'm like, hold on, Matt Berry? He goes, yes, I met Matt. And blah, blah, blah. I said, but Matt's like, uh, you know, snuff box and IT crowd and all these other things I'd seen ADBC which Gar- is just, Marengue's dark place one of my Gar- Marengue, you know all the, and it was funny enough Gar- Marengue I wasn't too aware of then I knew of it but I never watched it and there was no on demand then even you know it was all before that so there was you could still get the stuff obviously but it wasn't caveman times but it wasn't like on demand you couldn't just go there and get so uh, so I just said he's perfect his voice look he's the voice and he goes, well, I'm not ringing him. You ring him. And I went, okay. So he gave me the phone. I says, hello. Is this Matt? Yes. He says, this is Thomas Walsh. I'm a friend of Neil Hans. Neil is here. Oh, yeah, hello. I says, I'm doing this record with Neil. And some press had got out that we were doing something. I think Matt said, I've heard something about this, or may have heard it to a friend. And I says, if I send you like a little MP3 rope mix, this is a section in a song. I'm going to write out some lyrics for you to narrate, would you do it? He goes, I'd love to do it. And that's, so that, all the writing in the middle of that song, the narration bit, is Neil writing. Neil wrote that bit. It's mainly my song, that song, uh, as an example of the way we wrote together. But he wrote the, now of course we did write it out, finish it together, but I brought that song in. And then we bashed it about. So, we sent him the thing, and he just sat back in every tree and, he did it in real um, math style, first time. Yeah, breaky line, you know, all this. And of course, it was too over the top. And we got back, we rang him back then a few hours later and said, look, we actually don't want you to do it comedically. We want you to do it kind of, you know, we want you to not get too hippie, feel it, you know, a little bit. And uh, he just said, okay, I know what to do. So next one was perfect. Just perfect. So, just slotted it in and, and it just made the song even more wonderful and uh, so I became friends with him from that day on and we became very good friends we're still very good friends but he's a bollocks <laughs> a head wrecker <laughs> like it just if, if you you're going to be friends with someone and they're online and you know friends who send pictures and stuff he's one of those guys what a talent though Come a big Come big big fan of Mark Berry Oh, he's a, the the oh, new What We Do in the Shadows, the remake of the, of yeah. the movie, is just spectacular. It's brilliant. So he's doing that show, and I love his toast. Right? I love yeah. toast. And he's bringing toast back. Yeah, he, he's currently filming it at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Toast America. But he's doing it at this moment now. He's doing it. And of course, with Arthur Matthews from Father Ted. That's yeah. Arthur's and, and Matt's baby. But uh, I love toast. Year the Rabbit was okay. 
he's not a big fan of Year of the Rabbit. He's, you know, he likes it, but you know, still, it'll get better, I think, if he does more. But Toast is brilliant, fantastic. really fantastic, and everything about Matt that I love as a comedian. It was a brilliant, amazing uh, musician. Yeah, great so, version of Live and Let Die online for yourselves. Oh Jesus Christ! Oh, I apologise because. I'm trying to do Macket. I probably failed this. <laughs> no, that was good. Well, I think David Arnold was on that version. You know, the wonderful David Arnold who's doing keyboards and that. Yeah. That was some air winning for our lineup. But, but, uh, but I've done. I, I did the voice of of Ray Porteous on Toast and all. Do you know about that? No, I know Ray. Yes, get away with that, yeah. No, no do you, so you where's know, the young buck? Well, no, not his voice. Let me stress this. Oh, sorry. You know when the episode with John Ham. He falls in love with John Hamm, toast. <laughs> uh, you know the song where Ray Porteous and the other guy come to him and they say, you're the worst actor in the world and all that. That's me singing that. I've seen Ray Porteous. Wow, brilliant. Brilliant. In a couple of episodes. And there's an episode, the Blow Football episode. Uh, they're playing Blow Football Championships. And that's me singing the Blow Football song in the background. You'll hear that. Fantastic. So I'm very proud to have done some toast stuff. Ah, toast is. He, he won't write me. He won't write me apart. <laughs> uh, just because he knows how annoying I am, <laughs> the same way he's annoying. He's, he's scared to bring me on set. He used to say, "Live and let live." You know you did. You know you did. You know you did. In this ever-changing world in which we live in, makes you. One regret I do have, you know that ridiculously brilliant Reeves and Mortimer show that they, that they did a few years ago, House of Fools. Yeah, Fools. yeah, he's on that actually. Yeah, he's beefing that, right? Yeah. So I was in London uh, with Second Duck with Lewis, I think it was. They were doing the last season of that, I think it was, and it was the last ever show to be recorded in in Wood Lane in the old BBC, the very last show. And he invited me to the rap party. He invited me to a, a, a recording that night. And I was bollocks. And we were staying, of course, because Neil would love the nice hotel. So we were staying in a very plush hotel in London. And I was on the bed. And I think it was Glastonbury was on or something. That there was, and I had me sandwiches from Super Value outside or whatever, spare. Because I wasn't paying 18 quid for a tuna sandwich. <laughs> In the Gresham or whatever the fuck it was. That's, that's, that's Dublin now. That's oh, yeah. Like straight out to the spare and get me sandwich and me crisps and, <laughs> and up to the room. And I was watching the telly and he sent me a text and said, I'm here with Josh Home because he's great friends with Josh Home from Queens of the Stone Age. They've worked together. Josh Home is in an episode of Toast, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he's in an episode. Singer. Season three. Yeah, the lead singer. Yeah. And... I, I talk about it. Reeves and Barber. Yeah. You know, Josh Home, Matt Perry. But I was so. And I, I remember some night out with Matt. Uh, some nights out with Matt previous to me giving up the drink. Okay. And I didn't remember a lot of them. I remembered that he existed. So anyway, uh, I just kind of went, I'll show you my best. You know what happened? An ABBA documentary came on ITV. And I went, fuck this. I texted him back and went, 
tell Josh Holm he's a lovely guy, I'm sure, but Abbott are on telly, fuck off. <laughs> and I didn't move. I do regret that, though. Should I worry about the house you're living in? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can you hear me, Clem Fandango? But the great thing is, he's, he's doing it. It's a BBC one, this one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, 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 and I think it's got, well, I was slagging him saying you got to get it out for Christmas, but I think it'll be next year. Ah, oh, I can't wait for it. But look, they're doing it at the moment, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I'm very proud of him, like I own him or something, but I'm delighted he's doing another toast because it's brilliant and it's worthy. I, but we did the video, you might have saw the video for what do you like. Yeah. But we did the video that day, I got, I got some pictures with his basket. <laughs> is this the yeah. one in the, you're in the park and he's playing the keyboard yeah and he's pissed himself laughing at you I was, I was watching him because you're doing your bit and he obviously knew something was going on he's just in tears laughing at you on the keyboards yes because you know yeah because I'm calling him some name because he'd be saying to me oh you've got a lovely arse or something he'd be saying this you know, he's you know it was yeah. just uh, GoPro Cameron uh, my good friends at Low Jinx record label Andrew and Amy just came up and shot it so we got some great footage of us sitting around this fireplace it's a real old wooden fireplace but it didn't come out so well but I've, I've yet to see that footage that was a good laugh we ended up just doing a video in the garden because of the light and stuff it was really it was like four hours you know just having a laugh I have a great George Harrison Jeff Lynn story and all I didn't uh, come on you have to tell come us on. Jesus well I finished with it because you know what it is as well my next door neighbour it's actually a big fan when I got to RD forced I'm in RD and I was living the other side of the town I met this guy with his kids in the, in the Super Valley and he went oh, I'm a big fan of yours because he's a big Beach Boys fan and he goes I have your stuff and blah blah it's great to meet you and we took a few photos and and his kids were all oh that's the guy my dad plays Brilliant. lovely to come to RD you know and be known it was lovely yeah. the house I moved into he lives next door away so we're having great crack he's loving it and he's helping me out in my garden and all but ah, he's driving man. me up to the town in a minute because I have to post some stuff deadly, deadly. so he's knocking in about, in about 15 minutes so I'll be grand I'll just throw the slippers on I can go to the shop with my slippers and all <laughs> oh, Brian Wilson <laughs> But have you got living in uh, seclusion and all you have it all sorted? So I'll get this one in quick. But when I went to Jeff's, the first thing I noticed when I got into Jeff's was he has a little alcove near his kitchen and he has three Ivan Novellos sitting in the alcove, right? So, of course, I got so close to winning one. I didn't tell you the other story right away about the Ivers, but I'm up with that. But anyway, Simon LeBon gave out air Ivan Novello, right? There's a great story leading up to it. That'll be this third part, all right? <laughs> But I, I've seen the statuettes and that's, you know, I just I was so close and he announced Palmatini. But the way he announced it, it sounded like he was going to say Douglas Lewis. It's a fun story. But I kind of went, and then he said Palmatini. So I was so close. So I went, and the first thing I saw was that after I tried to rob out the toilet. And I said to Jeff, obviously you have some Ivan Avellos. And he goes, did you not win one? You know, as if that's just a standard thing you do every fucking day. You're like, he says, no, Jerry, I got close. Well, I didn't win one. And he goes, oh, yeah, I've got some. Uh, they're over there. I says, yeah, I can see them. Can I have a look? 
So he won for Out of Blue, right? 78, best album at the Brits, or sorry, Ivers. He won a Brit as well for that. 1980, Song of the Year, Xanadu, because he wrote it. And 94, like a lifetime achievement, excellence in songwriting award. So we had three. So I picked one up, you got a picture with it and all, I have the picture and all that. So he says, do you know what I always think about? Jeff says to me when I think of Ivers, Ivan Abella says, George. I says, okay, tell me, tell me why. And he goes, well, when I used to go to see George in Friar Park, he says, especially in the early days, we were getting to know each other. Uh, he says, I'd arrive and he'd be definitely in the garden. He'd very rarely be at the house. Rarely. But in the early days, I'd turn up. I'd be driving from Birmingham or wherever he might be in London. Get there. I'd go to the house. Olivia would say, he's in the garden. Now, you know when someone says he's in the garden and you go to your back garden and your dad's sitting in a chair? That's fine. Like, Friar Park is a billion acres of land. You know, George had trucks and tractors and all. So he could have been anywhere. But he, she says, just walk down, you'll find him. So Jeff's walking along for about, you know, five minutes or whatever. And he hears a bit of rummaging. And but next of all, he sees the hat or whatever. There's George on his knees. And he says, all I could see was about five or six Ivan Novello Awards around him. And I'm going, what the fuck? And he goes, so I walked up and says, hey, George. He goes, oh, Jeff, Jeff, you're here. Sorry. I've just got a bit of seed in here. The, this tree needs a bit of flower, a little bit of shrubbery around it. And uh, Jeff goes, Ivan the fellas? He goes, yeah, he says, they're really great, bottom heavy. They're great for sticking in the ground <laughs> and throwing the seeds in. And I just went, oh, man, that is so brilliant. Because George, because he says they used to win them in the Beatles. And they, they turned up for the early ones. You can see footages of getting arrived with the Bellows in the 64, around that time. But they won them every year. So, of course, the bigger they became, they wouldn't turn up with the Ivers. Yeah. They get them posted out. So George would have like a crate of Ivers the Bellows for all kinds of things. You know, just, and so he has loads of them. But I did hold Jeff's one. And the thing about the bottom is it's really heavy on the bottom. It's like a BAFTA. The BAFTAs are really heavy on the bottom. And but the but the Ivers one is round on the bottom. It's like the the image is standing on this like, this plinth kind of, and it's round. And I remember my dad planting seeds. He'd always put the trowel in, do the round thing, and put the seeds in. So George is just sticking Ivers the bellows in the ground. <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love that because that's that's the real guy, really. I think that's what I mean. So well, Thomas, we're gonna let you go. Unfortunately, yes. we could still talk for another two hours. I'd imagine, but. Before we let you go, I'm going to bring you back to that kebab shop in Crumlin. You're down to your last, you got you had to order your kebab, you're down to your last five pence, wooden pence down, wouldn't it? What song goes on the video jukebox? So I want to say the High Llamas, Sean O'Hagan's band, originally Michael Disney, and Checking In, Checking Out, which he released about 90, 94, maybe. Brilliant. And it's a yeah. beautiful... And I'll tell you what, I was thinking, checking in, checking out. Yeah, well, I've checked in in life and I've probably not got long enough before I check out. I'm saying so that, Thomas. that's pretty oh. apt. Because uh, you were saying the last song or whatever. So I was just thinking, it's an upbeat song, but it's also full of his wonderful reverie and 
and darkness, I suppose, you know, but ultimately uh, just a beautiful thing. So I thought of that, so I'm sticking with it. Checking in and checking out. Why be shy when you can kick the can and shout? I can't find a stop button. <laughs>